0: Thank you, good morning, how wonderful to be with you, thank you so much, I trust you can hear me okay? Right. So Jesus didn't have this problem, it's the acoustics by the Sea of Galilee. Um, So when Stan asked me to come do this, I, I said to him, what do you want me to talk about? And he said, talk about anything you want. This is not good for a college professor, we just go. Um, So, I was asking this morning to Reed, who picked me up, thank you, um, to Melissa, to some other people, what have you been talking about? What do you want to hear about? Because the more I know about your needs and interests, the more productive our time together would be. So, what I did learn is that you've been talking recently about new forms of Christianity, about reaching out across borders, whether they're denominational borders or national borders or borders regarding how we used to think about things like gender and sexuality. So I thought it might be good this morning to talk about Borders, and I also thought it would be good to talk about Jesus, because I think that's important in a church context. So we'll talk about Jesus and Borders for a little bit, and I hope I will leave you intrigued or encouraged, perhaps a little bit confused, and that's okay too, because I'm back here this evening for question and answer. So if I say anything that strikes you as unhelpful or insufficiently argued or potentially blasphemous you have this evening to take me on, that's fine. Um, And and since I do live here in Nashville and I do teach at Vanderbilt, you're welcome to send me an email. You can find me on the Vanderbilt homepage. We'll start by talking just a little bit about questions of faith, because faith is helpful here. Um, When some of my students approach the issue of faith, They approach it as if it's a mathematical problem, and if you simply had enough information and enough intelligence and enough patience, you would get the right faith, right? You just had it, and once you had it, you knew that it was true, and if somebody else didn't have it, it means they don't have enough intelligence or they don't have enough patience or there's something wrong with them, right? This is actually a category confusion, because if we treat faith as if it's some sort of mathematical problem, or if we look at truth as just singular, there's only one way of doing church, there's only one way of believing, we've turned faith into some sort of mathematical problem. That's wrong. I trust some of you know what Sudoku is? a Sudoku where you fill those numbers in the little squares, and if you're smart enough and patient enough, you can, everybody gets the right answer. Faith is not like Sudoku. Faith is like love. And love is not logical. And love has nothing to do with how smart you are or how much you've read or what your IQ is because love is something that begins in the heart rather than begins in the head, which means when it comes to religious faith, you ought not to be able to argue somebody into it because somebody else will have another answer. And you ought not to be able to argue somebody out of it. Where academics comes in, where the intellect or the academy comes in, is once you fall in love, you want to know everything there is to know about the object of your love. So it seems to me, if one falls in love with Jesus, you know, I want to see the baby pictures. I want to meet the parents. You could go either way on that. Um, I, I want to know what he. Sa- I want to know who his friends are. I want to know what bothers him. I want to know the context in which he lived. So all that academic stuff comes in after. For me personally, I'm Jewish. I go to an Orthodox synagogue, which means it's really kind of bizarre that you've got me here. Hallelujah for you. This is good, right? Um, So for me, my heart is completely filled with my own Judaism. I do not worship Jesus as Lord and Savior. On the other hand, I've dedicated my life to trying to understand him because I think he's absolutely fabulous. If I think he's terrific and I'm on the outside, how much more so should people on the inside think? And it seems to me in understanding Jesus that if one is a Christian, Jesus probably ought to be more than just a really interesting teacher or a really good rabbi. He's got to be more than that. But he's also got to be that really good rabbi who would have made sense to people who, whom he encountered. I mean, his neighbors in Galilee, the priests in Jerusalem. So. My own sense is, if I can understand him as a first century Jew, that should be of interest to me because it's Jewish history, like he's one of ours, Um, but it should also be of interest to people who worship him. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's look at him in terms of how he defines the other and who's on the outside and what pointers we can get from him by understanding the sense of the other. And we'll just take a couple of soundings on this. The easiest way to look at Jesus in terms of dealing with the other is in the parable of the Good Samaritan, and I'm trusting you know this. Good Samaritan? Okay. Yeah, right? Good? Yes? Good. All right. You can talk to me, it's okay. We do this in the synagogue, we talk to each other, it's fine. Get an occasional amen, Okay, so in the parable of the Good Samaritan, what we typically miss is the run-up to the parable. Remember the fellow going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Well, there's a setup to that, and the setup actually talks about self and other. A fellow comes up to Jesus. He's a lawyer. I should check to see if there are any lawyers here. You may not want to admit it. Um, lawyers, Lawyers in the Gospels typically get bad press. They're legal experts. And he comes up to Jesus, and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is a terrible question, because it's suggesting that eternal life is some sort of commodity to be inherited, rather than a gift freely given, which first century Jews would have known. And the point is, he stood up to test Jesus. To test in Greek, the language of the New Testament, is the same word as the word to tempt. That's what Satan did to Jesus back then. So the lawyers in Satan's role, I'm not really on his side. And if you know the story about the temptation, this is my first example of proof texting where somebody shoots a verse at somebody and somebody shoots a verse back, right? We do this in Nashville on occasion. Um, It tells us, even from the contest with Satan, that the Bible is given to us as a rock on which to stand rather, I think, than a rock thrown to do damage at somebody else. So in looking at the question of self and other, how do we ground ourselves in the biblical tradition and make sure that that grounding is used to welcome people and welcome the stranger, rather than to push somebody else or to demonize somebody? But here's our lawyer. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, good Jewish teacher that he is, turns the question back on the lawyer. We do this. It's called the Socratic method. You answer a question with a question. Socrates got it from us. And he says to the lawyer, So, what is written in the law, what do you read there? And you can hear that stress on literacy, and it's repeated, what is written, what do you read? Because reading, particularly when it comes to the Bible, is always an act of interpretation. We can see what the words are on the page, then we have to figure out what they mean. And that's not always easy. And particularly in Hebrew, it's not easy. To this day, you can go into a synagogue, and it's not like we check at the door. And by the way, if you come into a synagogue on the Sabbath, we don't handle money, so there's no collection, and we feed you. It is the best deal in town. Um, (laughs) if, if If you look at a Torah scroll, which are to this day handwritten, only consonants, no vowels. If that seems weird, think about text messaging. I mean, you can still do this which means reading for Biblical Hebrew was really an art because you need to know what the vowels are. So, Jesus says, what is written in the law, what do you read there? And the lawyer responds with two verses that pretty much all Jews then knew by heart, and all practicing Jews know to this day. Uh, And he would have said this in Hebrew, which is, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and he tacks in with, with all your mind as well. This is Deuteronomy 6. It's part of Judaism's daily liturgy, and it is as hardwired into Judaism as the Our Father is into Christianity. And then he follows up with Leviticus 19, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. The great rabbi Akiva, one of our great teachers, who was put to death by the Romans about a century after Jesus, said about love your neighbor as yourself, this is the greatest principle in Torah. This is the, the touchstone by which all other laws should be interpreted. And Jesus responds, you've given the right answer, do this and you will live. But note that Jesus changes the question a little bit. The issue was what must I do to inherit eternal life? The lawyer is thinking about his own personal salvation. When Jesus responds, he's talking about living in the present. Because his primary focus is not how we get into heaven, if there's some sort of blueprint, but it's how we love God and how we love our neighbor. On this one. And we have the parable of the Good Samaritan. Why? Because the lawyer says to Jesus, So, who is my neighbor? Now, I used to think this was a fairly snarky question, and it can be, but it's actually a very good question, and it gets us to the question of who's in and who's out and who's self and who's other. Because to this day, no matter who we are, we have two different categories: we have the neighbor and we have the stranger. The neighbor would, for example, be a member of this church who might have voting privileges or be known to the people on the inside. The stranger is the person who walks in by herself early in the morning and sits by herself and prays that somebody will come and say hello before you're asked to do so. Yeah. Who's neighbor and who's stranger? The neighbor is somebody who's a citizen The stranger is somebody who doesn't have voting privileges or potentially a green card. So we do need to know who those categories are. I spend a lot of time out of the country, so if I go to England or I go to Australia, or if I go to South Africa, I'm the stranger. There are certain rights and responsibilities that neighbors have that strangers don't. So stranger, citizen, neighbor, tourist. Stranger, resident, neighbor, refugee. How do we work these out? But we also know, according to the book of Leviticus, that ultimately it doesn't matter when it comes to love, because even though we have these two different categories of neighbor and stranger, in the same way Leviticus 19 says, you must love your neighbor as yourself, it goes on to say, you must love the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You know what it's like to be displaced. You know what it's like to be a minority group. Make sure that everybody else feels welcome. So love is more important. The, 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 save the applause for later. It's fine. <laughs> love is more important than the category of neighbor and stranger, and that's how the parable of the good Samaritan works because it's dealing with questions of neighbor and stranger. Fellow's going down the Jerusalem Jericho road. It's about a 600-foot drop off, and it helps to have a four-wheel drive. And he's waylaid by bandits and beaten, stripped, robbed, and left half dead in a ditch. And two people who should have stopped to help fail. One a priest and the other a Levite. You know this, right? But you have to ask, why a priest and a Levite? Why not Larry and Mo? Um, You know, why not a Democrat and a Republican? Why a priest, why not a Pharisee and a Sadducee? Why a priest and a Levite? Because in early Judaism, and in fact in Judaism to this day, people within the community, we still know to this day who the priests and the Levites are. If you are a descendant from Moses' brother Aaron, you are a priest. It carries on the paternal line. If your father's a priest, you're a priest, and there's nothing you can do about it, which is not the way it works, say, in Roman Catholicism. Right? This is not the way priesthood works. Um, If your father's a Levite, you're a Levite, and you can actually tell usually by last names. If you meet somebody who's Jewish, last name Cohen, or Kahan, or Cain, the Hebrew word for priest is Kohain. Likely, from the priestly line, if you meet somebody named Levine, like me or Levison or Levi, probably a Levite. Can't always tell, but often. And every single Jew knew that if you said priest and Levite, the third category would be Israelite. Priests descended from Moses' brother Aaron, Levites descended from Levi, Aaron's ancestor, one of Jacob's 12 sons, and everybody else has descended from Jacob's other sons. With me on this so far? So now let's do congregational participation. I'm going to get, we're going to do this twice. I'm going to give you two names, you're going to give me the third. I don't think you can get this wrong, but we'll try. Larry, Mo. of course, Jews by the way. Um, (laughs) At least in the original. Father, son, you can say Holy Ghost, it just dates you. But yeah, so Holy Spirit. If you know the first two, you know the third, because they're the neighbors, they're the insiders, and the first two set up the third, except the parable, and parables never go the way you think they're going to go. The parable, instead of going priest-Levite-Israelite, which would be Larry Moe Curley, the parable goes priest-Levite-Samaritan, which would be Larry Moe Hitler. And at this point we think, oh Samaritan, the poor oppressed minority on the block. That's not who Samaritans are, Samaritans are the enemy. Jews and Samaritans hate each other. They attack each other. They're neighbors and they can't stand each other. It's somewhat like uh, the American Civil War or as some of my students are want to say, the War of Northern Aggression. Yeah, I'm from Massachusetts, we never called it that. Um, neighbors, kin, but they hate each other. And it's the Samaritan who stops to help. And at the end of the parable, um, the original question was, so who is my neighbor? And Jesus changes the question to who proved neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And the poor lawyer can't bring himself to say Samaritan because that would be saying like Nazi. But he manages to get the right answer again, right? Uh, The one who showed mercy to the fellow who fell among the robbers. And Jesus says you go and do likewise because what's more important than who's in and who's out and who's neighbor and who's stranger is that you act neighbor to one another and you manifest that love. So Jesus is interested in how the law gets us there. How do you love the neighbor? How do you love the stranger? And what's more important ultimately? Categories of insider or outsider? Or the love that's supposed to be for everyone? Just as Jesus says in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, that God's son, the the light that we have shines on everyone, the just and the unjust alike, so it's, just as God loves everyone, so we who are in the image of God should love everyone. We're back to the text. Jesus spends a lot of time talking about the Bible, which, which is why it floors me that people who follow him don't know the scriptures of Israel, what the church would call the Old Testament, as well as they should. Because that's the basis on which Jesus and his followers are living their lives and trying to discern the divine will. And what Jesus is doing is interpreting that. So they have discussions about what does it mean to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. You know this. Moses comes down the mountain with the commandments. There are actually 613 of them, but 10 was easier for Hollywood. You know, and one of them, one of the top 10 is honor the Sabbath and keep it holy don't do any work on this, and then you've got to figure out what constitutes work. And I have a feeling as soon as Moses came down the mountain and said, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, on six days you will work and you shall dedicate the Sabbath to the Lord. One Jew looked at another and said, what constitutes work? And the next thing you know, you've got two synagogues. Because you can debate this, what constitutes work. So Jesus is asked, is it right and proper to heal on the Sabbath? And he talks about by example, you know, if if your sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, you pull it up. So if it's appropriate to pull up up a sheep, therefore it's appropriate to heal a body. This is a very Jewish way of arguing. You argue by analogy. We have the same thing, and this moves us to categories of gender and sexuality. We're going to do Good Samaritan gender, sexuality, and salvation all before 1105. This is a minor miracle, so hold on. It also comes when Jesus talks about marriage. The question about marriage in the first century is could you get divorced for any reason? Because everybody knew you could get divorced because the book of Deuteronomy says you can get divorced. But was it no fault or did you have to do something really, really wrong? And people debated that. People debate this to this day. Under what circumstances can you get divorced? And some rabbi said if she burns your dinner, I'm a domestic disaster, my marriage would have lasted till dinner time. If she burns your dinner, if you find somebody who's prettier, if you can hear her voice across the courtyard, no fault. And other rabbis said, only in cases of adultery. And adultery in Judaism, by the way, requires two witnesses to the act, which strikes me as just plain sloppy at that point. I, worry about this. Anymore. You wonder. You know, get you on adultery, get you on stupidity. Anyway. Okay, so so Jesus gets asked this question, is it lawful to divorce for any reason? And in Matthew, and Mark and Luke, he he says, no, from your hardness of heart, God gave you this concession regarding adultery, but from the beginning it was not so, and then he cites Genesis. This is why a man leaves his father and his mother and he cleaves to his wife like glue, um, and therefore what God has joined together, let nobody separate. Does that sound familiar? So what Jesus is doing is he's using one verse over against another. And in Jesus' view, it seems as if Genesis, the creation narrative, trumps Deuteronomy. In other words, what do you do when you have two texts that seem to be at odds with each other? Which one takes preeminence? But he's still staying within the biblical tradition. I simply wonder, in terms of some of the comments that we've heard regarding gender and sexuality recently, and I know this has been a hot-button issue for this church, as it has for a number of of other systems, Um, I, I wonder if this same page from Jesus' playbook might work with the gender sexuality issue. So when I do works in in church, and in synagogues, by the way, because the Jewish community is also split on issues of of GLBT concerns, right? My synagogue, the Orthodox synagogue, does not enfranchise gay people formally, so I'm sort of fighting that from the inside. Um, We try to figure out how to interpret the tradition. So what do we do? We go to the book of Leviticus, the default, Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, I trust you know about these verses. Right? You male person shall not lie with a man the lying of a woman, which is what the text literally says in Hebrew. But when you think about it, and here we're talking about how do we interpret material, I don't know exactly what that means. If the text had simply said, do not put this organ in that place, then I would know. That would be clear. (laughs) But it doesn't say that. Don't sleep with a man the way you would sleep with a woman. And then I've got to figure, what does it mean to sleep with a woman? Does it mean you roll over and, you know, hog the sheet? Um, does it mean who gets the remote control? Does it mean intimacy? And if so, of what sort? So already I have to guess. But let's say it means what most people think it means. Let's say. Then we have to worry about, well, if it really means you can't have two men engaging in some sort of sexual penetration. Can I say that on a Sunday morning? <laughs> oh, my. Do come back later. This is only foreplay for the sermon. Um, So, you know, if that's what it means, and what did you do at Grace Point, you got applause for foreplay? (laughs) Jesus, not so much, but foreplay? Really? Anyway, so let's say that that's what it means, and you have to figure out why is it there? What is the law intending to do, right? Um, Is it intending to keep the population up by prohibiting homosexuality? Of course not. Because gay people can procreate, right? um, Is it attending to uh, stabilize the family? Not so much considering that you could have lots and lots of wives, and I'm not sure how stable that is. King Solomon, as they say in the South, bless his heart. King Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, which is really more than you need. I, you know, I think if you put a man in there, it's not gonna make a whole lot of difference, right? Just one more. For the Bible, what seems to be going on, and this is a much shorter version of something that we could elaborate upon, um, is that the Bible wants men to do men things and women to do women things. Don't sleep with a man the lines of a woman. In other words, don't treat a man as if he's a woman. Men should do men things and women should do women things, because that's the way the ancient world looked at life which meant men could be doctors and women had to be nurses and you couldn't shift it around. Men could be airplane pilots and women could be kindergarten teachers and you can't shift it around. A hundred years ago, it was considered very, very bizarre for a woman to want to get a PhD because our intellects were so fragile that we could not withstand the rigors of academic life. Nonsense, right? So we have to worry about, so what do we do with this material? Well. We could read it literally, right? Look at the words that are used, just as Jesus looked at the words of the text. You, male person, don't sleep with a man as if he's a woman, exactly so. If you're a man and you're in love with another man, sleep with him like he's another man, and don't make one of the men in that partnership be in the girl's role. Two men are simply two men, and two women are two women. I don't think that's what the author of Leviticus intended, but it's not a bad reading. For me, I'd rather take a page out of Jesus' playbook. At the beginning of Genesis, if you read Genesis chapter 1, the creation of the world, everything is terrific. Uh, Day 1, it was great. Day 2, it was fabulous. Day 3, it was awesome. Day 4, it was terrific. Everything is good, 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 good. The Hebrew is tov. You might have heard the expression "masal tov. Tov means good. Mazel tov is literally good luck or good on you. Well done, congratulations. Right. Good, 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 good. And the first time Jesus, uh, not Jesus, the first time God, if you're Christian you can go with that, that was just a slip on my part. <laughs> it's, what, it's what happens when you teach New Testament. The first time God says something is not good, lo tov in Hebrew, it is not good for the man to be alone, I will make a helper as his partner. If God says it's not good for the human being to be alone, why would I condemn a gay person to a life of singleness and celibacy? In other words, just as Jesus uses Genesis to trump Deuteronomy on divorce, which doesn't really seem to be a hot-button issue these days, and Jesus is pretty clear about that, why can't we use Genesis to trump Leviticus and say what's really most important in terms of the created beings that we are all in the image and likeness of God is it's not good for the human being to be alone and it's none of our business when, when somebody says, here's the person with whom I want to spend the rest of my life. Maybe that's a page out of the Jesus playbook and we might perhaps go there. In terms of interreligious dialogue and who's saved and who isn't, well, salvation is a really kind of iffy thing because how do you know? So, my students, well, they know, of course, because they've got their text open to John chapter 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. You've probably heard that, right? Well, for the Gospel of John itself, it's actually an answer to a question. So, just as it helps to hear the parable of the Good Samaritan in light of the run-up with the lawyer, it helps to look at passages in terms of what comes before and what comes after. It's actually an answer to a question. Uh, There's a fellow named Thomas, you might recall doubting Thomas at the end of John, the one who says, I'm not going to believe unless Jesus puts in a personal appearance, right, that doubting Thomas. Thomas says to Jesus, show us the way. And Jesus says, I am the way. Like, have you not been paying attention for the past 14 chapters? But in the early church, uh, people had patron apostles. Uh, there was a group that, that flanked around Matthew, and a group that flanked around Luke, and groups that flanked around Paul. You can see this in First, first Corinthians, right? where Paul talks about factions in the church. I belong to Paul, I belong to Cephas, I belong to Apollos, I belong to the Christ. And they're all splitting up with their go-to teacher. Well, Thomas was one of those go-to teachers. And if you go to non-canonical materials, texts that did not make the canonical cut, well, it turns out there's a gospel according to Thomas, and there are the acts of Thomas. And in all of this Thomasine, that's the adjective, all of this Thomasine literature, Thomas is like a guru, and you don't get saved by the cross, and you don't get saved by, as they say in the South, the blood of Jesus. You get saved by knowledge. And if you simply have the right answer, the Sudoku model, You too can be saved. So Thomas is basically asking Jesus, give me the inside information so I can work out my own salvation. And Jesus says, at least for the Gospel of John, you can't do it on your own. You gotta do it through me and you have to do it through the cross. You have to do it in terms of no greater love than giving up what you are and who you are for someone else, that type of love. So it's really an answer to a question. What happens today? It gets used as a general model to say, here's salvation, and unless you believe in Jesus, you are going to fry in hell. So how do we deal with this? Mostly what I do is history, and what I've been doing so far is basically history and looking at text and translation. But when it comes to salvation, I don't have any history because salvation's in the future. So you can't be an historian and talk about who's saved and who's damned, but you can be a theologian. So I put on my other hat. Here's what I imagine might happen, and this I made up, so here's how it goes. <laughs> it's nice when people tell you they make stuff up, right? doesn't usually happen from the pulpit. All right, so after a very, very long and happy life, I die. I find myself at the pearly gate. I'm already encouraged, for me personally, because the word for pearl in Greek is margarita. <laughs> you yeah, know, so you can work with that. This is good. You can work with that. There's a little Jimmy Buffett music in the background, right? Drinks with little umbrellas and. Anyway. Um, So there's a line, because there's always a line, but it's heaven, so it's moving quickly. Um, And I get up to the front of the line, and standing at the front of the line is St. Peter. And you can tell he's St. Peter because he's got a little rock insignia on his lapel, because Peter's name isn't really Peter. His name is really Simon, son of Jonah. But Jesus nicknamed him Peter. You are Petros, Peter, and on this Petra rock. Petra like petrified? And whether this is Peter the rock, like solid rock, or Peter a little rocky, it could go both ways, but it's a little bit of heaven humor, and I pick it up, right, because I'm a Bible scholar. Peter, I say, this is fabulous. I have so many questions, like can you speak Greek? You know, I want to know. What happened to your wife, because you healed your mother-in-law, and there's no reason to have one unless you have a wife, so what happened to the wife, and what did she think when you took off with Jesus? I do wanna know. Where did you wander off to in the middle of the book of Acts? Who won that food fight that you had with Paul in Antioch? There's all these questions. And Peter says, look lady, not right now, I'm on duty, uh, but after dinner we can sit down and I'll tell you what you wanna know. And this is Bible scholars heaven. Standing behind me in this line is a fellow who in his earlier life was a television evangelist. You can tell. The pants are so perfectly creased you could get a paper cut by running, you know, the hair, perfect, the teeth, you need sunglasses, right? Um, And he has managed to find in the heavenly ante room, in this this waiting room through which you progress, a copy of a red-letter King James Bible, leather-bound, floppy version. So you may have seen these before, and all the words of Jesus are printed in red letters. It makes it very convenient. You can also find in this heavenly antechamber a copy of the Jewish Publication Society version of the Tanakh, which is the scripture of the synagogue. You can find the Koran. You can find the Book of Mormon. You can find the complete works of Mary Baker Eddy. There's lots of stuff out there, right? It's my image of heaven. It's sort of an all-purpose, all-religion place. But he's got his King James there. And he's got his text open to John chapter 14, and he's becoming somewhat apoplectic. He's really quite upset. And he says, Peter, sir, Mr. Apostle, I don't mean to make trouble my first day in heaven, but did not our Lord and Savior say right here in red letters that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him? And then he looks at me and says, I have seen her before, this Jew. Now I have to point out, he said, I've seen her before on television. I am thinner in person, just, just so you know. It seems to me that she doesn't worship Jesus as Lord and Savior. Yes she's read the New Testament, and yes she likes Jesus a lot, but she doesn't worship Him as Lord and Savior, so pardon the expression, but what the hell is she doing in heaven? And Peter says, my story. And he comes back a couple of minutes later with a fellow who's maybe my height, I'm 5'5", Um, sort of swarthy complexions of olive-complected, these dark eyes that look right through you, and holes in his palms because the Gospel of John tells us that the resurrected Jesus still bore the wounds of the cross. You go up against the empire, you still bear those wounds. Now I've got lots of questions, but clearly this is not the time. And Jesus says to the man, what is it, my son? And give him credit for his convictions, he's going for it, he says, Lord, All my life I've proclaimed, you are the Savior. I've tried to bring people to baptism. I've tried to bring people to church membership. And now you're telling me that this Jew gets, I don't understand. And Jesus says, well, yes, the Gospel of John does have me saying that. And that's very carefully phrased. It does have me saying that. But if you look back over to the Gospel of Matthew, which comes first in the canon, and you go to Matthew chapter 25, you'll find the parable of the sheep and the goats, where I make it very clear that it's not those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who do the will of the Father, who feed people who are hungry, who give um, a cup of water to the least of these, oh, who visit people in prison, side note, on Monday evenings I teach out at Riverbend, and I've been doing that for 14 years, so I got uh, that one checked off. (laughs) Um, It seems to me that my daughter, AJ, has, has done the best she can with the talents that she's been given. And the fellow says, Lord, that's works righteousness, you're saying she earned her way into heaven. And Jesus says, no, flip back to the Gospel of John. Because if you go to John, I make it very clear here that I am the way that, let me repeat that, I am. That should resonate with the book of Exodus, I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not you, and not your narrow way of looking at scripture, and not your narrow sense of who's in and who's out, and not your constipated sense of who's saved and who's damned, I say she gets in, do you want to argue? And the last thing I recall seeing before going off to get my heavenly accessories is Jesus handing the man a Kleenex to help get the log out of his eye. Why? Because if one wants to proclaim Jesus the Savior, then let him do his job. It's his job, in Christian thought, to determine who's in and who's out, and who's saved, and who's damned. That's not the job of his followers. As I understand the New Testament, the job of his followers is not simply to proclaim the good news, but to determine what that good news is, and then to live it out in a sense of love and compassion, not only for neighbor, but also for stranger. Love and compassion not only for people in one's family and not even only for the, for the stranger, but as Jesus says, you also have to love the enemy and pray for the enemy. So as I'm running off to get my harp and halo, wings and slippers, I wonder what could that message be? The Jesus I understand from history, the one I know from study, the one I have dedicated my life to understanding, wants people to be able to look at other people and see the image of God in their faces, which is basic Jewish teaching. We're all in the image and likeness of God. Our job is not to judge, lest we be judged by the measure we're judging. He makes that really clear. Our job is to love, and the love is not merely an intellectual sort of thing. Our job is to feed the hungry. Our job is to sit by the bedside of somebody who's ill. Our job is to walk with somebody who's lonely. Our job is to make it clear that we're two or three are gathered in the name of whatever God we worship, the presence of God should be there. The Jesus I know from history is concerned about the other, he's concerned about the self, he's concerned about the neighbor, he's concerned about the stranger. And at the end of the day, or the end of the world, or the end of one's life, the question that gets asked is not so much, what do you believe, but how did you love your neighbor as yourself? How did you love the stranger who dwells among you? And how even can you manage to love the enemy? And if you can get around to answering those questions, we're a little bit closer to the kingdom of God that both Jesus and in fact Judaism proclaim. Thank you for letting me speak with you.